Good morning, church. It's good to see you guys. And those that I cannot see, I'm also glad to know that you're tuning in online. If you're new here, I'd love to know that you're here. You can fill out an info card in the seat back in front of you and and give us your information. We'll contact you in a respectful way if you drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out. If you're online and you would like to give us your information, you can email us at info at bellwetherchurch.org and we'll contact you in a respectful way. My name is Nathan, I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are looking for a perfect church, you came to the wrong place. You came to the wrong place. This is not gonna be your place, but if you're looking for a fellowship of people that have been rescued by God and who are just humbly trying to trudge through life, following him from repentance to repentance, then this is the place for you, and I'm so glad that you came. Um, and we're, that's who we are as a people. We're a movement of rescued people who love and serve God in the world, and we're so glad that you would come and join us as part of that. And our invitation to you is that God would allow you to be part of what, what he's doing in this people, that we'd just be rescued together, all of us together. So if you're coming and you feel like you're coming from a place that feels very far from God, you're in a great place. If you've been walking with Jesus all week, we're so glad to have you here too. So um, we've been in Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, for nine weeks. This is nine week in Nehemiah. And I want to give you a quick overview of what's going on in this book before we dive into chapter nine. This is an amazing chapter in God's word. I love it. But the basic story is the people of God have been chosen by God. They entered covenant with him. He gave covenant to them and he made promises to them that as long as they would keep his commandments, then things would go well with them. They would dwell in the land. God would place his name on them. But if they rebelled, if they were stubborn, if they went their own way, then bad things would happen. They would be scattered. They would receive the consequences of their sin. And they've been living in the consequences of bad decisions for 70 years. 70 years in captivity, and now there's been three groups of people that have come back to Jerusalem, and now the third group has come back, and the tide seems to be changing. They seem to be turning their hearts back to God, and last week we talked about their initial response to the reading of God's Word. When they opened it up on the first day of the seventh month, they read it aloud, and what happened? The people began to weep. I mean, they were crying. They were convicted over their sin, and Nehemiah and all the priests go to all the people, and they say, look, this is not the time to cry. We're going to have a big party, and then we'll get to the repentance part later. But first, they were going to celebrate that God was still being faithful to them. So they've celebrated Passover, the Feast of Booths, and now you get to the 24th day of the month, and they reconvene, and they're like, let's get back to the business that we had started back in chapter 8. Okay, So they had been weeping, and God had said, not right now. Now's the moment that they come back to do business with God over their sin. And I want to ask this question before we ask what's going on in this passage. How do we handle our sin? How do we handle the reality that everybody has this one thing in common? All of us have this in common, okay? So if you came in and you're wondering, how do I measure up to other people? All of us have this sin problem in common. Everybody who came into this space and everyone in the world have this problem where we need to be reconciled to God. We need to be reconciled to what he's designed for us in the world. And so it is a really important question, how do we deal with that problem? How do we do it? Because God's people are going to lay out a pattern of worship and confession in this passage. And instead of reading the entire passage and then pausing and praying. I want to pray before we enter into it today because I'm going to break it up into smaller segments, okay? So would you pray with me? And before I pray, 
I want you guys just to notice that Mason isn't here today. He's, uh, he's our normal guy up here leading worship. You guys know who he is, a young guy. Loves Jesus. Um, this week, he's in Kenya with his dad, digging wells for people that do not have water, which is awesome. And so we not only are a, a rescued people who love and serve God in the world, so that's part of who we are as a people, and Mason gets to go be doing that today, which I'm kind of jealous how awesome is it that he's in Kenya. Let's pray for him, and let's pray for our time in God's word that God would both convict us and comfort us with his word. Will you pray that with me? Father, I thank you today that you would rescue a people like us, the likes of us. Who am I that, that the highest king would ransom us? I, I just... Uh, resonate with that song so much that, that you would stoop to us and bring us into your fold and make us your family and make us your people is just amazing. And the fact that you've rescued and redeemed Mason is a great glory to all of us. We love him. We love your work in him. And we pray that you'd protect him and that you'd work faithfully through him today, wherever he's at in Africa. And then for everyone in this room and for our, my own heart, as we gather our attention towards your word and what you would have to say to us, Pray that you'd just give us humble hearts who are hungry, hungry for what you would have to say to us. We believe that your word always is relevant, that it has things to communicate to us, that you're still speaking today through this, your word. And so I, t I pray today that as we bring our hearts to it, that you would both convict us of sin and comfort us once again with the great news that you would rescue us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, let's begin starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. What a sight. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. A few observations before we move forward. First thing is that their gathering, once again, and the purpose of their gathering was twofold. First, to make a confession and to worship their God. They spent half of the time that they were worshiping reading God's law. The second half of the time, which was another quarter of the day, um, making confession and remembering what God had done and worshiping the Lord. And so that is the way of Christ. He he shows us who he is through his word. And this moment has come uh, because they opened the book of the law and they came to a realization that they were sinners, that they had violated God's good ways in the world. And because of that, that's why they began with weeping last week. And they said, no, 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 this is the joy of the Lord moment. Now they get to the moment where they must put on confession. And so the 24 days since they first opened the book, they have sackcloth, ashes, earth on their heads, Fasting, which is a declaration that they're no longer uh, uh, slaves to their appetites. Sackcloth is saying, hey, we're uncomfortable as a response to the internal uncomfort about what they had happened, what had happened and the sins that they had committed and then ashes and dust was a physical reminder of death, that they were formed from the dust and that one day they would return to the dust. And this is the season of Lent. I don't know if you know that. But one of the reasons that people put ashes on their head is a reminder that we will return to the dust, a reminder that it was for our sins that Christ had to die. For a quarter of the day, they read God's word. And once again, I said this last week, every time God's people gathered, God's word was central to their gathering. So they stand up in their place for a quarter of the day, they read the law. The next quarter, they make confession, worship the Lord. And I want to go back to God's word, starting in verse 4. 
Y'all pray for me as I read these names again. <laughs> On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bonnie, Cadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunny, Sherebiah, Bonnie, and Chaniah. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hadiah, Shabaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. A couple things before we move forward. The direction of their words. First, they're crying out to the Lord, and they're also crying out to one another. So it's both vertical and horizontal. They looked at each other and said, we should bless the Lord. And they looked at the Lord and they blessed the Lord. So what follows is the longest prayer recorded in history outside, in God's Word, outside of the book of Psalms. So throughout all of God's Word, this is the longest prayer. And the prayer contains a basic overview of the Old Testament narrative. So if you're looking for what in the world happened in the Old Testament and how should we understand it, this is your synopsis, okay? This is your 30,000-foot view of what's going on in the Old Covenant. First, he starts with creation. Look at verse 6. For you are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven and the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. Basically, they're saying, hey, we worship you because we're joining with all of creation. The purpose for which you spoke everything into existence, you alone are God. We declare that with creation. You made everything by the word of your power. Now we serve and worship a God who spoke everything that you've ever experienced into existence. That that is powerful. Like pause for a moment and take it in. He's the God of all creation, of heaven and earth, of the seas. And then if you can just imagine, have you ever stood at the edge of the ocean and just paused to take it in? And then you realize like he made everything underneath that surface that you see. He made every bit of it and he's the Lord of all of it, every single inch. In other words, God, you made everything. It's sustained by you. You hold it all together. As Abraham Kuyper would say, it's going to be on the screen. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's mine. It belongs to him. Every single space that you've ever occupied, it first was made by God and it belongs to him. It is his possession. So that's where we start this whole song of praise. He made everything and it all belongs to him. And not only that, in Hebrews 1, 3, it says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only did he speak it into existence, okay, y'all, he not only spoke it into existence, every single fabric, every molecule is held together by the word of his power. So right now, the fact that you are sitting and breathing and your, your lungs are, are going in and out and my voice is making sounds, all of that is being held together by the word of his power. So not only did he create it, he sustains it. That's good. So before we move on, the people gathered under this banner, everything belongs to you. It's all yours. Then they move on. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, in the Girgashite. You have kept your promise for your righteous. Second thing that they worshiped and remembered was that he was the God of promises, that he chose Abraham. He changed his name. He called him out and said, I'm going to show you something you've never seen. He's like, where am I supposed to go? I'm going to show you. 
And then he just takes him. He changes his name and he makes a promise to him that they are the glad recipients of. So part of their understanding of who they were began with creation and it also continued with this idea that God had made promises that they were the benefactors of. I'm going to say that again. God had made promises in their history and to their people, starting with Abraham, that they were the benefactors of. They were saying, hey, we have received certain things. Certain things belong to us because of the people that we belong to. Okay? And then in verse 9, he moves forward, basically summarizing the whole books of Exodus, Numbers, and moving into Judges. Okay? Verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and you heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servants. You gave to them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go and to possess the land that you'd sworn to give them. Here's what I want you to see. The, the third piece of what they worshipped and remembered was that God was a God of deliverance, that he not only Uh, that they not only suffered, he saw their suffering. He saw their affliction. He heard their cry and he knew who had acted arrogantly against them. He brought about justice for their enemies. He made a name for himself through the plagues and through their deliverance. He cast them like stones into the sea. In all of these places, they're saying, look, we remember that you have delivered us before. And they needed that reality in the present. They knew that he was the God of creation and they needed that reality in the present. They knew that he was the God of promises and they needed to remember those promises in this present moment. He's not unaware of their hunger. He provides daily manna for them even when they were rebellious. Look, here's what I want you to see. Even in the consequences for their sin because they were stiff-necked and then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years following the cloud by night, I mean by day and the pillar of fire by night. In all of those moments, not only did God see them in their affliction, he saw them in their rebellion and he did not forsake them even in the consequences for their sin. Even when they were walking through the roughest period of time, God was still giving them guidance. He was still giving them food. He was still fulfilling their thirst. He cared about their practical needs. If you've ever wondered, does God care whether or not my bills are going to be paid? He provided everything they needed each and every day. And while they wandered, guided by God, they continued to be rebellious. They acted presumptuously. Look at verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck. They really liked that phrase. It says it all through the book of Exodus. And appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. Look, not only did you provide for them, while you were providing for them and sustaining them, they had a plan to return to the place that you had delivered them from. 
He goes on and on to explain more of how they've sinned against God. And before I get ahead of myself, I want to just pause for a second and just say, hey, this begins their confession. We're not there yet. We're going to talk about what their confession looked like. But it began by acknowledging that they had been presumptuous. That means rude and arrogant, bold in their disrespect. They were bold in their disregard for God and his laws. They were stubborn. They stiffened their neck like an animal that doesn't want to go through a gate. They were rebellious. They they were neglectful of what God had done for them and rebellious to obey. They were heedless and negligent. General sin and specific sins. He begins to confess. First, he's saying, look, all of us acted arrogantly. And then specifically, first we have this condition generally that we got a problem. We're arrogant, prideful, rebellious. And then specifically, he names certain things that they did. They raised up a leader to take them back. And all of this confession of sin is mixed in with their worship. It's mixed in. The storytelling of how awesome God is and was to them was mixed with this reality that they knew that they needed God to be great. They didn't just say, how great is our God? They were saying, we really needed you to be great. We really needed you to be awesome. We really needed you to be gracious and kind and forgiving. We needed all of those things that you displayed throughout our history. All throughout history... God's people have been this canvas for which he could display how awesome he is. And the same is true for us today. He's redeeming people to show off how awesome he is. I mean, he is showing off how great and mighty and gracious and kind in our stubborn rebellion. Look at God. Look at the rest of verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive Amen. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf, even when they were rebellious towards who you are, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Can you imagine? And they committed great blasphemies. The next thing they worshiped was this reality that God was gracious to them. He was ready to forgive. That means he's not going to have to find it somewhere. He's not searching through his purse looking for things to give us in terms of forgiveness. He already has it ready for us. He's waiting with forgiveness. He doesn't have to go looking for the, the resources. He has it, eager to give it to us. He's never running low on his forgiveness account. He stands ready. Isn't that amazing that his pardon isn't something to be petitioned or waited on? Now, if we need someone's pardon here on earth, like human relationships, have you ever just really needed someone's forgiveness? I mean, you did, you did it and you knew it and it was bad. And you had to wait and wonder, will they ever forgive you? God is saying, hey, I'm not like that. I'm eager with it. I'm ready. I'm standing, waiting. He's merciful. He loves to give you the opposite of what you deserve. He loves to do that. <laughs> That's so good. That when you know what you deserve, and he says, I'd love to give you the opposite of what you deserve. What you've rightfully earned does not belong to you. Something much better and much more gracious belongs to you. He's slow to anger. Just the opposite of how he stands ready to forgive. He's really slow to anger. He's eager to forgive. He's really slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He has a surplus of it. He's abounding. His cup is running over with love. Look at verse 19. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness, a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, did not depart from them by day, a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way that you should go. 
And you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Now that's miraculous. Forty years, their clothes never ran out. They're wandering around. Their shoes never wore out. The entire time he's sustaining them and holding them together. And not only that, he gives them the conquest of the land through 22 all the way down to 25. They took possession of it. He's victorious. And I just want to make this observation as we close out this section on worship. God is a sustainer. He's a sustainer. He didn't forsake them. The truth will be especially important when God see themselves in this current situation. Now, I said this before. They needed the realities of their history with God to be present in the present tense. Because they were at this threshold this tipping point where it was before and hopefully after God would display himself to be faithful once again. They're at the end of 70 years of human consequences for sin. God had scattered them because of their sin. And now they're coming back and repenting and they're saying, God, you've been this way before. You've been a faithful sustainer throughout all of these times. You did not forsake us even when we forsake you. You were faithful to us even when we were faithless towards you. And he is, they needed this reality in the present. A couple observations about their worship. The foundation of their worship was very real in the present moment. It was a personal understanding of God's grace, both in their history and in the present. Many times they had been unfaithful. Many times he was faithful. Many times that they had been arrogant, he had been merciful. As many times as they had wandered away, he wandered towards them and did not forsake them. As many times as God's people had been rebellious, he continued to love them, sustain them, provide for them, and sometimes punish them, yes. Sometimes there was justice. And this is that moment, that historical moment where the past was being needed in the present. We need you to be merciful again. Look at verse 32. Now therefore, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you've been righteous in all that, you've, that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law, paid attention to your commandments or your warnings and gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your own greatness that you gave them, in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to your, our fathers and in, to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set for, over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now we conclude this passage with the people dealing with their sin. They make confession of their sin full bore. They acknowledge that the reason that they're in this current situation was because of the ways that they had acted. They didn't look at God and say, why did you do this to me? They said, you've acted righteously the entire time. We were the ones that were foolish. They didn't blame God. They didn't blame one another. 
They needed God to intervene for them. And they said over and over, you've been faithful throughout history and we need you to be faithful once again to this reality of how you've displayed yourself to be merciful, forgiving, and gracious throughout history. We need that in this moment. We have this one request. Remember your mercy. We're pleading with you to do it again. That's what they're saying. They're saying, look, you've acted righteously. Our sins, we receive them as the consequence. We see it as our own fault. And we're asking you to remember the ways that you've worked in the past. And then next week, we're going to talk about how they, bring, they renew the covenant and how they say, look, we're, we're going to go after you. We're going to separate ourselves from the people. No more intermarrying with them. We're going to say you and you alone. Now, in this moment, though, many times you've been merciful. Do it again. Many times you've bore with us. Do it again. Many times you've been faithful. Do it again. And that's where the chapter closes in verse 38. And as I close today in this chapter, um, the two things that I've prayed for our time in this chapter have been this. First, that we would see God exalted and lifted up, that we'd see him for who he is, and that would do two things. It would cause us to wonder, and it would cause us to turn away from our sin and say, I don't want that. I want God. So I have this question for you. Are you mindful of God's wonders? I believe that every single person in this room was made to wonder And that's one of the ways that it describes what they had done. They forsake being mindful of the wonders that he had done in their midst. They turned from looking at them. All the story of God's people was a canvas to display his greatness. And they no longer were paying attention to how he was demonstrating what he was like and who he has been in history and who he is in the present. And that's how they got into this place. And so I want to ask you this question Are you mindful of God's wonders today? Do you know who he has been throughout all of history? Because he longs to demonstrate those same characteristics and realities and glories today in his church and in his people. Are you mindful of who he is and what he's doing? So take time to bring the history of who God is into the present. That's what it means to be mindful. It means that you remember what he's done and you don't just leave it into the history. Like Napoleon. Listen, when I was in eighth grade learning about Napoleon... It was just something I had to learn for a test because it was something that happened in the past. I didn't need it in the present. I couldn't imagine how I would need to remember that in the future, okay? Some people treat God and the history of God like a a fact that they have to memorize for a test. And here's what I want you to know. He is very real and very present. He doesn't just want you to remember what he's done. He wants those things to be relevant today in this moment. He's not some Napoleon God. He's real. He's alive. And he's still doing the same kinds of things that he's done before. Are you mindful of who he has been and who he is today? And when you do that, you're going to see over and over that he's eager to save. He's ready with forgiveness. He's eager to pour out this abounding, steadfast love. Because his kindness, it leads us to a place of repentance. That's what Romans 2.4 is. So I want to I ask you, are you mindful of his kindness today? Are you mindful of his grace? Are you mindful of his justice? Wait, what? That, wait, what? Are you mindful of his justice? Here's what I mean. Part of what made their confession just so potent was because they were saying, look, you haven't done anything wrong when you punished us, okay? You didn't do anything wrong. We were the ones that acted foolishly. You were righteous to scatter us and spread us out. And now look at our predicament. Everybody owns the land that you were supposed to promise to us and gave to us. We squandered that. The things that you gave to us, we did that. 
When you ponder how great he is, it makes this reality available. We can look at our sin. We can look at it for what it is. Now, if you do not know that God is kind, you will avoid it, okay? You will. You're going to pretend like it doesn't exist because that is how sin has been dealt with from the beginning of history. Adam and Eve, they go and take the fruit. What's the first thing they did? They, they sewed together fig leaves to hide from one another. God wasn't even walking in the garden yet looking for them, and they were like, we gotta hide this from one another. That was the first thing they did. And, and my second question for you is this, how do you deal with your sin? Because it is really, really important. Go ahead and put it up there. The second question is this, how are you gonna deal with it? How will you deal with your sin? How do you deal with your sin? Because throughout history, we've been doing the same things that our mother and father in the garden did. They hid from one another. They're gonna pretend like nothing happened. But the, naked was, the nakedness was there. They were aware that they were naked. They hid. The next thing they did, God looks for them and they hide from him. And then as soon as God confronts them, they begin to blame one another. Well, the woman you gave to me. The serpent did it. And we have the same tendencies with our sin. We're looking for a way to make it right. And a lot of ways, we pretend that it's not there. We shift the blame and blame others for it. We see all the ways that we're victims of other people's sin. When we talk about sin, the only way that it makes us feel comfortable is when we think about other people doing sin to us. It's never, the first thought is never like, how have I sinned against Almighty God? And uh, here's the thing about sin. Unless you see the reason for the cross, it's always going to be Debbie Downer for you. You're always going to be like, wait, why sin? Why are we going to talk about that? But when you look at the cross and see that that was for you, then it makes it joyous to look and say, you know what? I deserved that, and he did that for me. <laughs> he did that for me. It's like this great rescue, and you cannot comprehend what you've been saved from till you get saved. There's a story uh, that Karl Barth told. It's actually an old poem, a Swiss poem, about this rider who's riding through the night, okay? He's riding on his horse, and he's waiting to get to a ferry to take him across the lake. And he sees this light off in the distance, and he gets there, and, and he basically realizes that he's already crossed the lake, and he's mortified. He's like, what in the world have I done? This is the poem. He gets there, he talks to this maiden, and it says the maiden gazed with wondering eye. Because he's asking, where's the lake? When am I going to get to it? How far ahead is it? Both ferry and lake behind thee lie, and were it not bound by icy crust, I should say that thou hast quitted the boat. But just, the stranger shuddered in dread suspense. Yon plain behind I have ridden thence. The maiden uplifted her arms and spake, Great God, thou hast ridden across the lake. The hoods of thy steve had hath knocked at the grave. In the gulf of death, the fathomless wave, did the billows beneath thee not vent their wrath, broke not with the crash the icy path? In other words, sometimes you can't even see the grave danger that you've escaped until you get to the other side. And then God says, this is why I died for you. Amen. And you say, whoa, <laughs> whoa. It is very grave indeed what Christ has suffered for our place, in our place for our sins. And there's a couple ways that you can deal with it, not in our own uh, history of Adam and Eve. They hid from it. They blamed others. They avoided it. 
There's another way that's really popular in the South. I want to introduce it to you. It's called moralism, okay? And this is what it looks like, okay? It looks like, I know I've been bad, but I've also been good. I've also done a lot of good things. And compared to these other bad people I know, I'm doing pretty good, okay? That is so opposed to the gospel. It denies the righteous gift that God has suffered in our place for. It belittles what Christ has died for. In every way that we try to make ourselves okay to God, it belittles what Christ has suffered in our place for. And here's the good news of the cross. Back in Nehemiah 9, 32, it said this. They say this in their prayer. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. In other words, I hope that we've suffered enough to pay for the things that we've done. That was their prayer. We hope that all the consequences for our sin are behind us. Let it be over, God. And here's what the cross declares over every believer. It's completely finished. It's completely done. It's completely behind you. And when you look for the consequences of your sin, you look to Christ. Now, there are physical consequences for bad decisions, but there is an ultimate spiritual consequence for every way that we've been stiff-necked and rebellious towards God. And it was completely dealt with in Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is the good news of the gospel. It starts with some really terrible news. It starts really terrible, but you can look at the terrible news about your sin because of the great news of what Christ has done in our place for our sins. And so that is how we deal with our sin. And so I conclude with this, the regular pattern for every believer, if you're in Christ, is confession and repentance over and over and over. Throughout this chapter nine, they keep coming back to this reality, God, you've been gracious before, do it again. And the longer we keep ourselves from that pattern of confession and repentance, the further we get. God wants to keep us in this regular pattern of coming back and saying, you know what, I failed you, but you've been so good and so gracious and so kind, and I come back to you because of your kindness towards me. You've rescued me over and over and over. This is the pattern of every believer. So if you were thinking, well, I don't want to think I'm so bad. I don't want to really think I'm... I'm I'm doing okay, God, okay? If you ever come to God and you're bringing your resume before him, okay? He says those things are like filthy rags. He is unimpressed with your best deeds, but he is very impressed with his son doing everything that you could not do for yourself. And in every way that we bring an empty resume to him, Christ declares it's finished over you. It is done. It's complete. And so we can come back with open hearts and minds confessing and repenting because it's the regular pattern. We're not avoidant of sin because it doesn't intimidate us. It is for our sins that Christ has suffered. And I want to read this as a declaration in closing over you from Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to declare it over everyone who believes this morning. If you believe Christ has died for you, It might be appropriate just to open your hands like this and say, okay, I'm going to receive this as your word to me. But God, now I'm going to start before this. Before this, he says, every one of you, children of wrath, all of you destined for destruction. But this is what we receive in Christ. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that anyone could boast. Here's what he wants to do. The same canvas of his people that he has displayed his marvelous riches of grace through in the past, he wants to do that in this day and age through the canvas of his people saying, God, we will follow you in confession and repentance. We trust that your gracious and your goodness goes beyond our failure. Let's pray to that end. Father, I pray that you would just seal these words in our hearts. That we can come once again to this throne of grace with confidence and draw near because you have paid every penalty for our sin. You have done it. It is finished. We are prone to wonder. Yes. But you are so good. You come after us every single time. Over and over and over you've come to us and you invite us back to this throne of grace to receive your goodness and kindness once again. You declare that justice is done in the cross and I pray that we would receive that great gift today and that it would leave us changed. That it would send us forth with joy and humility and a good mixture of both. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.